I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. The news that I write about can feel far away and long ago. Sometimes it's literally both things. But I think that it helps us understand our place in the universe. It broadens our sense of wonder. It expands our curiosity. And those are qualities that you carry with you into the rest of your day. The journalism I do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. Become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey, you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 20th. Today, the impact of redlining in Syracuse and how it's still being felt today, and how Martin Luther King Jr. got his name. If you took a map from 1937 of where the redlined communities were, which were where Black families were forced to live and could not live anywhere else, and you placed a map of today's Syracuse on top of it, you would see that the lines for the highways and interstates, they fall almost exactly on those red lines. So the footprint of this highway system was almost predicated on where these redlined communities were. This is Robert Samuels. He's a national reporter for The Post. Robert recently went to Syracuse, New York. He wanted to talk to people about this one-and-a-half-mile stretch of elevated highway that cuts through the city. The land underneath the highway used to be the 15th Ward. Interstate 81 was built in the 1960s during the Eisenhower administration, and it runs through a bunch of neighborhoods. One of them is the south side of Syracuse, New York, which was at one point a thriving, mixed-income Black neighborhood. When you look through this particular section of I-81 that runs through the 15th Ward, you start to realize that this cut through a neighborhood, that it wasn't just some random place, some empty, vast wasteland where a highway was built. And then you have to start asking yourself some sort of questions, like, how did it end up in this place? And what happened to the things and the people that were there that existed before the highway was there? So you went back to basically answer some of those questions. Yes. What did you find out? Well, I found out that this highway was built atop of an African-American neighborhood with a very rich history, that it was a place that was a destination for a lot of people who are migrating from the South in need of manufacturing jobs to start a new life for their families. And when I spoke to people like Charlie Purcell, he told stories upon stories of the type of Black-owned businesses there. We had grocery stores, we had... uh Fish markets, we had uh, homeowners, a lot of homeowners on, on Almond, Harrison, Adams Street, Washington Street, and the 15th Ward. There were Black doctors, there were Black grocers, there were Black dentists, and it was a community that made everyone feel proud. Do you remember the names of some of the businesses that were out there, that were there? Yeah, I remember a lot of the names of the Bessie grocery store. Uh, Mr. Bessie was the first grocery store we had. Uh, 
And that was located on the corner of Almond and Madison, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had gas stations. Uh, Mr. Uh, now, it was also a segregated Rogers, community. So and that means that the people who lived in the 15th Ward largely lived there because they could not live anywhere else. Before the highway was built, Black people in Syracuse were barred from looking for housing outside the 15th Ward. Then, in the 1930s, the federal government started loaning money to homeowners to fix up their houses. But homes in the 15th Ward were shut out. Banks deemed them too risky for investments because they were in a Black neighborhood. It was redlining 101. So essentially what happened is without that ability to invest in the neighborhood, the neighborhood started to sink into blight. And uh, then things started changing pretty rapidly over the course of the next 10 or 20 years. The types of incomes started to deplete. Um, The housing started to deplete. And then in the late 40s and early 50s, the federal government recognizes that there are large swaths of urban blight around the country. They decided different neighborhoods were way too terrible to save, and those neighborhoods were usually the blighted neighborhoods. And so those neighborhoods started to get targeted for projects. And in a lot of places, like in Syracuse, those places that were targeted became things that we call the spine of America today. Railroads, airports, and this highway, Highway 81. And so what happened to the people who lived there? I was incarcerated during that period, but what it did when I came home and I learned politics while I was in prison as well. But anyway, when I come home, what it did to our neighborhood was destroy the strength and power that we had. Because Their time, lives and their communities were largely destroyed. Uh, you had about 1,200 families who were displaced 400 to 500 businesses were lost. 90% of the structures that existed before the highway was built completely disappeared. My, my siblings and cousins that had to move away from that area because they used to live right on Harrison Street where the hospitals are right now mm-hmm. and stuff. And Adams Street, they had to move from those areas and they moved, they came up to the east side. And if you talk to a number of residents today who currently live in the 15th Ward, they don't know that history. They don't know that just a little more than a half century ago, there was this neighborhood that was interesting, that there were Black businesses there. It was practically, not only was it erased from the map, it was sort of erased from the history of the community. So why did you go back there now to learn more about the history of this highway? Well, I went back there now because there's this really interesting debate because the highway is about to come down. Highways are only supposed to last between 50 and 70 years. After that, the elevated part of the road starts to become structurally unsafe. You can totally rebuild it, but that costs many billions of dollars. The cheaper option is to just demolish it. And that's what the state of New York wants to do. Get rid of the overpasses and build a boulevard with bike lanes and pedestrian crosswalks and wide medians with plants and trees. And there would be space to rebuild some of the neighborhood. And so within that community, there's this new interesting debate that's starting that's saying, okay, well, if this highway comes down, what are you going to give us? Because you sort of ruined us. And so this transportation project, this 
slab of concrete that runs through a neighborhood, all of a sudden they weren't talking about it in terms of infrastructure anymore. They were talking about it in terms of reparative justice or reparations. We're looking at it 100% through a, a restorative justice lens. And so we're looking at, like, this is a civil rights issue, this is a civil liberties issue, this is a due process issue. When I spoke with Lanessa Chaplin, who's a organizer and a lawyer at the American Civil Liberties Union, she said that this was really their chance, that now there was an awareness about some of the historical discrimination that wasn't there before. When we hear those kind of stories, we just, you know, I think it's important to understand our history. And I was born and raised here. I'd never heard of the 15th Ward. Really? I was born and raised here. I'd never heard of the 15th Ward. And when I do presentations, and I, I now I ask every class, have you ever heard of the 15th Ward? No. I mean, if you're like, you know, over 50, maybe. But, you know, growing up, we didn't, oh, didn't you know, by the way, there was this black community that used to exist uh, where 90% of the black folks lived and had jobs and businesses. And no, it's a foreign concept. We had never heard of it. And now might be the chance to seize an opportunity to do something that would be good and honor the legacy of the 15th Ward. So this could be a way of atoning from what's happened in the past, not just how we usually think of reparations in terms of giving people money, but basically investing in the infrastructure of this place because of what had happened before. Yeah. What they're saying is that the government owes them something. Because not only was sort of the theoretical community lost, wealth was legitimately lost. More than 400 businesses were destroyed. People had to uproot their lives. They lost houses. They lost property. And what they're saying is not just invest in the neighborhood, but also find ways to invest in Black neighborhood and Black entrepreneurship. And also make sure that this place doesn't gentrify, that If this highway comes down and you connect us to the other part of Syracuse, which is better off, so we don't get displaced again. What they don't mention is like how they're going to now tie in what they did 55 years ago and try to remediate those efforts moving forward. They do acknowledge that the original build caused great devastation to a working class black community, but they don't incorporate that language into the plan. And so we're saying go a step further and start incorporating that language into the plan. So what does that look like? The government is exploring a number of ideas for how to deal with the crumbling highway. And activists from the neighborhood have proposals of their own for how to do it equitably. Their dreams are that this can be a good thing for them. And they come in a plethora of ideas. Uh, One is to freeze taxes, freeze property taxes for people who are living there. So they can remain in the neighborhood when it improves. You know, what kind of things are you going to do to these people's property to restore them back into a place where they were before the divided up was built? And so what are we going to do, do to improve their land value and their land use without gentrifying them out? Another one is to be bought out, to say, all right, federal government, give me money, because actually living near this highway probably isn't a good thing for me. Uh, The people who live along there, they inhale lots of dust, lots of grime. 
And and I bet that that translates into higher rates of, of asthma for the people who live around there. Absolutely. Asthma rates within the city are twice as high as they are in the suburbs. And when I spoke with Rydell Davis, he told me that when he was growing up, he thought asthma was a hereditary trait. Hmm. He had it. It was terrible. His grandfather had it. It was bad. His mom had it. It was bad. And now he sees it in his son, which terrifies him. So that's a that's a consideration that people are looking at as well. So this idea of tearing down the highway, at least in this part, it it seems like something that the government is seriously considering. And obviously it seems like something that the people in the 15th Ward in many cases want to see happen. But what about the people who use the highway, people who live in the suburbs? I bet they are not very pleased with this idea. So this is the flip side of this argument, right? Because... While the people along the highway are very concerned about the highway staying up, the people in the suburbs are very concerned about the highway coming down because they see more traffic, they see increased commute times, and the state transportation department has been very proactive in terms of doing research to figure out how much a commute will increase if you live in one particular suburb or another. And usually it's about 10 or 15 minutes, which drives a lot of people in the suburbs a little batty. I find this story so interesting because it's a thing that a lot of other cities have considered too, right? As you know, I used to cover transportation, and I remember people talking about this idea that, as you said, a highway or an, a highway overpass particularly, it only lasts for like 50 or so years, and that's like the natural life of a highway. And that you have the legacy of these decisions that were made 50 years ago and that only now do we have this opportunity to like reassess those decisions and that a lot of communities are looking at their highways and saying it would cost so much money to rebuild this thing. Maybe it's worth rethinking those decisions and rethinking who we're prioritizing and and saving a lot of money by not rebuilding it. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of cities can sort of realize and acknowledge the first level of the argument, which was this edifice, it took people outside of our cities. And now we're living in a world where people are talking about new urbanism, where people want to do more within a walking distance, where they want bike lanes, like it's a different sort of world. And those highways can be a big inhibiting factor to that. So... That's one level of the argument. What I found so interesting about Syracuse is that there was such an active debate about the second level of the argument. And that argument was really told through quiet stories to families, Black families along the years, who tell these terrible stories about walking to neighborhoods and seeing exes in front of their, their homes and having to leave those homes. And, you know, when I heard these stories in Syracuse, they reminded me of stories that I heard while being a reporter in Detroit and in Miami. And it's just not enough to talk about the ideas of new urbanism. So now we're, when we're talking about re reparations, we're talking about restorative justice. And so we're saying that neighborhood that you destroyed was in fact the slums because you made it that way. So now you have to fix it. You have to actually reconcile with the harm that's measurable and 
also a f- the feeling of harm that like exists within Black communities and within Black families that were often silenced and are now really coming to the fore. Robert Samuels covers politics, policy, and people for The Post. And now, one more thing from reporter Deneen Brown about how Martin Luther King Jr. got his name. The man we know as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929. His name that was listed on his birth certificate then was Michael King. What happened was, in 1934, his father, whom we refer to as Daddy King, Martin Luther King Sr. took a trip around the world. So in Germany, he was planning to attend the Baptist World Alliance meeting, which was this big convention of Baptist ministers from all over the world. Researchers say that Daddy King, his visit to Germany had a real impact on him. There he studied Martin Luther, the theologian, who created this split in Western Christianity, right? So Daddy King is really impacted by the story of Martin Luther. So in August of 1934, Daddy King returns home to Atlanta. That year, he changes his name from Michael King to Martin Luther. He also changes his son's name to Martin Luther Jr., But it wasn't until much later that the former Michael King Jr. leaned into his new name. The transformation from Michael to Martin takes several years. In a letter in 1948 that he writes to his mother, he signs it, Your Son, M.L. And then two years later, there's a letter that he's sending to Coretta. They're still dating at this point. It's a really beautiful, poetic love letter And he signs it, eternally yours, Martin. So he called himself Martin Luther over time in the 50s and 60s as he's becoming this famous civil rights leader. But in my research, in my reporting, I thought that final night, that mountaintop speech, and this really, really beautiful speech that he had not written out, he says, And you know, if I was standing... At the beginning of time, with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. So, you know, he's talking to God and then he's calling himself Martin Luther King. I just I just thought that that was a really beautiful way to tell the story of this name transformation. Deneen Brown writes about Black history for The Post. 
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, opening arguments begin in the impeachment trial in the Senate. Because the proceedings will start at 1 p.m., our episodes this week will be coming out a little later in the evening. We want to make sure that you're getting the latest updates from the trial. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 